friendly, thank God. Um, <laughs> the first thing I've written on this piece of paper is, Hi, I'm Chloe. I clearly couldn't remember my own name, so that's a bit worrying. Um, so we're opening this evening's show uh, with a Marilyn Monroe quote, which is, I don't mind living in a man's world as long as I can be a woman in it. Very fitting for this evening. So this is right about now's celebration of women in the performing arts. The first of what we hope will be a regular feature for the project and forefront in our development of global new writing. Tonight, we're going to present five new pieces, all written by women. But first things first, let me introduce tonight's panel. We have Deborah, Deborah Baker. Can you give us a wave, Deborah? She is an actor, teacher, writer, facilitator, and creator of the Alphabet Monologues, which gives 52 actors a platform to perform monologues, which will then be shared on social media and sent out to casting directors. Round of applause for Deborah, please. We have Leo Gomez. Give us a wave, Leo. Lovely. Founder of Working Women, redefining social impacts through celebrating the amazing work that women do in the creative industry. Woo! We have our regular panelist, Sean Rowland. Give us a wave. There she is. Lovely. An educator, advisor, and playwright. <laughs> and our other regular panelist, Yasmin Sarak. Am I saying your surname correctly? Good. Um, <laughs> Yasmin is a theatrical agent. Wonderful. Those are our lovely panelists for this evening. So let's get down to business, everyone. I'm going to read from this sheet some wonderful facts and figures for you. If you get bored, just yawn very loudly and I'll leave. Okay. In 2013, a report by Tonic Theatre, which supports theatre and the arts to achieve greater gender equality, diversity and inclusion, stated that just 37% of stage roles were for women and just 8% of stage productions were scripted by women. Although this is still very much in its infancy, Right About Now strives to address this imbalance, but prior to this evening... We ourselves have also failed. Only 27% of the pieces that we've presented thus far have been written by women, and we want to change that, don't we? Yes. Whilst we can do little to change what has happened before, from the beginning of 2020, we will present an equal of pieces by both male and female identifying writers. So, let's get one final cheer for that. <laughs> Our first piece this evening is called Who's Mum and Who's Mama? It looks at parenthood and its potential joys and pitfalls. So please welcome our first actors to the stage. So I talked to Kat and Hannah. You met them yesterday, remember? With the little boy, Mateo, I think. This is the second kid they're adopting. Oh, yeah, I remember it. I'm a lot of boogers. That's not the point. Okay, yeah. Kat and Hannah. Well, the first day of meeting the kid is tomorrow, and they're taking the 9am bus, and I thought, maybe we could go with them? To meet different kids? Yeah, I know. They were just really nice, and it seems like they know what they're doing, so... But Matteo is Hannah's. <sighs> yeah, he's both of theirs, so... No, I mean, biologically, he's Hannah's. They didn't adopt him, so they've never adopted before, right? Right. So they don't know what they're doing any more than we do. Okay, that's fair. They just seem really nice, and I like them. Well, why don't you go and adopt with them? Heck, be Mateo's third mum. Why are you angry at me? We don't have to meet up with them, okay? It's, it's just hard, you know, being in this alone, and I thought it'd be nice to have friends, and for her to have friends as well. You're not in this all alone. You stayed in this room all day yesterday. You're not in this all alone. I'm here, okay? 
I'm sorry, it's just stressful. You're not changing your mind, are you? We didn't come all this way for you to change your mind. I'm not changing my mind, I'm not. It just, it doesn't feel real to me that in a day or two we're gonna be parents. That doesn't feel real. That's why you should come with me tomorrow. It's our first chance to meet her and we want her to know that we want her so bad. Because we do, right? Yes, yes we do, we want her so bad. I'm sorry, really. I know. We can get the bus tomorrow with Kat and Hannah if you want. And have breakfast with them before, if that'll make you happy. Sure. And maybe tomorrow, after we meet her, maybe we could go see a waterfall or something? Yeah, see a waterfall or something. And get a picnic? But we have to stop saying her, okay? We have to come up with a name before we meet her tomorrow. Maybe we'll just see her and know. Maybe we should wait. If we do that, her name's going to be the first thing that comes out of one of our mouths. And our child, our daughter, is not going to be named like Trudy or Edwina or something. I can assure you Trudy is not going to be the first thing out of my mouth. Well, I can't make any promises for myself, so we have to name it tonight. Okay, well, what do you want it to be? You must have some ideas. I have a list. You have a list? Well, it's just not my list, it's our list. We never sat down and made a list, there is no our list. It's just a lot of names that I've said we've liked over the past couple of months, and just some that I thought of. It doesn't have to be off my list, it's just a place to start. Okay, read me the list. Okay, Alexandra. Marlo. Marlo? I think it's cute. That's not a first name. Okay, fine. Hadley, Sophia, Rainey? And that's a weather forecast. Oh, do you have anything productive to add? We are not naming our child anything to do with the weather. Moving on. Jessie, Evie. Evie's kind of cute. Maybe. And Hadley was okay. Dana, Riley, Luna, Zoe, Keelan? Wait, Luna? I like Luna. You know that means moon, right? Which has something to do with the weather. Yeah, but I like it anyway. Luna. Are you sure? If you like it. Which I assume you do, as it's on your list. Our list. Our list. Okay, Luna, our daughter. Luna. She needs a middle name too. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I thought maybe Orly, if you think that sounds good with Luna. Orly, it means I have light in Hebrew. I have light. Yeah, and I thought it'd be nice for her to have a middle name in Hebrew. But if you don't want that, I understand. Luna Orly. <laughs> Moonlight. Yeah, Moonlight. Luna Orly Aronson James. I like that. That's pretty. What is it? I just... It's stupid. I should have said something before now, counselling and stuff, or... When we were booking the plane tickets, I don't know when I should have said it, but I should have said it before now, I'm sorry. Babe, what is it? Just tell me. <sighs> God, this is so embarrassing. It's just... I'm really nervous. I am too. But we're going to see her, Luna Orly, and it's all going to make sense. But what if it doesn't? It will. You can't know that. What if we see her and we... <coughs> I, what if I see her and I just... I don't love her. Like, I don't get that feeling right away that she's mine. Or, or what if I do? What if I do love her the moment I see her and she, like, smiles at us? <laughs> and they tell us it's just from gas, but we know that she smiled for us, and then we get back home with her, and I don't know what to do. You know what to do, you know exactly what to do, and I just don't. 
That's not going to happen. You can't know that. You can't know what it's going to be like for me. But I know you, Noelle. I promise I know you. And even if you don't love her anyway, you will. Once you get to know her, and even if you don't know how to change her diapers, we'll learn. We will learn together. And then when she's older, what if, what if she just never loves me? No matter how much I try to love her, no matter how much I love her, she just never loves me. I don't know what to do with that, and it's so painful to think that. And I can't look at Kat and Hannah and... Mateo. Mateo, I can't look at them, and I know you need to look at them because you're looking for role models, and that's exactly what they are. And I know you, so I know you need to see them and watch them, but I can't look at them being perfect and then picture how badly I'm going to screw it up. We don't have to spend time with them tomorrow if you don't want to. But you want to. But we don't have to if it'll stress you out, okay? Because you're the one I'm here with. You're the one I'm having a child with. It's you, love, okay? And we can stay in tonight and order room service and decide who's mum and who's mama, okay? Okay. Okay, good. Because I got you. And I shouldn't have said that before, about being alone. I'm here with you. And you're here with me. And we're going to get our Luna Orly, our sunlight and our moonlight, and we're going to figure it out one second at a time. I got you. Actresses got off of a plane this afternoon, so I think she had had a, a bit of a journey and everything. So, how amazing is that to come and commit to write about now and come and act here tonight? That's very cool. <laughs> so, just uh, a little a few more facts for you <laughs> before our next play. People began writing and performing theatre in the 5th century BC, however, it would be another one and a half millennia before. Rosfita of Gandersheim, took me a while to pronounce that correctly, uh, acknowledged by many uh, as the first female playwright, began to write about the world from a woman's perspective. But it was another 700 years before the likes of Afra Ben and Susanna St. Lever put the voice of women out of centuries of silence. But even then, opportunities for working-class women were scarce, not least because of the levels of literacy. Jane Wiseman is the only recorded writer of the time, who was not connected with the church or nobility, and sadly, only one of her plays survives. Was this the first step on the ladder of theatrical parity? Not until 2008 did the National Theatre stage a play by a female writer on the Olivier stage. Rebe Rebecca Lenkovich, uh, that was her play called Her Naked Skin. Whilst next week, in major London theatres, there are just six plays written by women, and two of them are by Agatha Christie. <laughs> <laughs> Our second piece is absolutely perfect for a scratch night, and it's called Luck of the Draw. Please welcome our next actors. I mean, my, my 
dad used to get them, and I, I'd scratch them a few times with a, a 2P found behind the car seat. <laughs> and if I wasn't allowed first scratch, I'd uh, take the ones he'd finish with and <coughs> scratch off all the silver till there wasn't a trace left. <laughs> I'd scratch it all off and the footwell of the car would be full of tiny silver shavings. <laughs> and then of course I'd be left with the weird bed and nuded card. <laughs> I always thought it was a poor little thing. Anyway, um, the point is, <laughs> I haven't bought one for myself before, so it seems kind of momentous, you know, my first time. <laughs> I'm, I'm weirdly nervous. ID to get it. <laughs> don't even get ID'd in bars much anymore. I mean, <laughs> I felt like I was 16 skulking outside a corner shop while someone's older brother bought some smurm of ice. <laughs> right, first number. One of three. If all three match, I get the money. Pretty simple concept. <laughs> Big old number. <laughs> I wonder if they if they put the big numbers first on purpose. If that's a tactic, they get you into it, raise your hopes, the addictive rush of possibility. You could be rich. Well, sort of rich, post taxes. Rich enough. I don't know why I bought it really. I was just getting some milk and I, I was stood in the queue and I'd left my phone at home so I didn't have anything to do and uh, they were just there, all curled up in this, this big transparent case, like, like bright coloured rows, like kids toys, or the houses from Balamori. You know, I know, I know, the whole theory of impulse purchases, I get why they put them there. So you see them when you're bored, yeah, but it was two pounds. I mean, what do you have to lose? Well, two pounds. <laughs> you have two pounds to lose, but there's an awful lot to gain. <laughs> Poverty tax, my dad called them, but he also kept buying them. I don't know why, I mean, we weren't poor. I mean, we wouldn't have said no, but they weren't a last-minute act of desperation, a cry into the void that if there is some intelligent design, if someone cares to please just hand me just one tiny miracle. I mean, it wasn't that. So I don't know. I don't know why he bought them. I mean, it would be nice to be rich. Everyone wants to be rich, right? I mean, that's the whole point. Like, I don't know how you'd, you'd wake up every day if you didn't think eventually one morning you'd wake up rich and happy. Like, I, I know, I know they say that no one's satisfied, but I think I could be. Once you know, I thought, yeah, I'm rich, I'm good. And this, this is rich, this, this would be rich. And it's fun, isn't it? You know those 
first flatterings of hope. It's like, oh, it's like, it's like falling in love. No, it's like, it's more like having a crush. Having the money would be falling in love. Huck, what would you do if you win the lottery? Great conversation starter. Oh, I could do so much. Everything would be possible. I mean, just imagine, no limits. The whole, the whole world at your feet, your path paved with cash, like, like the yellow brick road made of banknotes. I mean, ah, oh, but I think I'd be beautiful first. And that sounds ever so shallow. <laughs> I'm an awful woman, I'm an awful feminist. <laughs> but if I could choose, I'd be pretty. And don't pretend you do anything different. I'd be beautiful in that hard, rich way that involves manicures and hair like shellac and oh, Barbie cheekbones and clothes just so. I mean, they'd hang just so because I'd pay any amount to make them fit like that. And then I would be rich and beautiful. And I'd be at such ease in the world. I'd have a place, a meaning, a whole philosophy of wealth laid out for me. I wouldn't be obnoxious, though. <laughs> I'd be very tasteful. Maybe a sense of old money about me. I mean, I've wanted it for so long, it'd basically be old anyway. <laughs> I'm thinking about this too much, but I should just... that have to match and they'd matched right up to the last one. Eleven little apples and then that last set of keys. I started crying right there in the street. I couldn't stand it. I was so angry that this could be dangled in front of me. This alternate world where I was rich and happy and I I didn't have to live in fear of the other kids because I'd be so rich that all my oddities wouldn't matter. And once, once I thought of that possible world, it was unbearable that it shouldn't be true. I thought when I grew up, I'd get over it and it wouldn't matter. <laughs> but now, of course, Dad's dead and I'm bloody miserable. And I'm talking about my pathetic anguish to an empty house, and I just want money. I think I'd feel a lot better if I had some money. I think I'd be more interesting if I had money. All I do now is come home, 
and stare catatonic at the bare radiator and the bare walls of my tiny, tiny flat that I haven't cleaned in weeks and drink shitty, shitty alcohol and um, wake up and do it all again, but this time with a banging headache. Dad didn't deserve to die. It was a car accident. The other driver was drunk. And then, of course, we, we really had no money because he was the one that earned. And when the life insurance ran out, we had diddly squat. They say lottery winners don't deserve it. That the reason they end up broke again is because they didn't earn it so they don't know what to do with it. No one deserves it. Being rich, I mean being, ri <laughs> being rich is immoral. I know that and I, I still want it. I mean, I'd be a terrible person for an overflowing bank balance any day of the week. I'd throw every principle, I'll, I'll guzzle oil and coal and make shady arms dilled and, and spend laundered oligarch money. Just, just make me rich, God, please, just make me rich. And then I'd have everything I ever wanted. Then I wouldn't go around longing and yearning for things I can't have. But things like this just bring the delusion up to the surface that I think I'll get the third number. Three pretty birds in a row and then suddenly, suddenly everything will be alright. I mean, I want them to be alright. I don't want to be miserable. I really don't. I just... I don't, I don't know any other way to be. <laughs> I'd quit my job. I have fantasies about that. I have a very boring job. It involves spreadsheets. <laughs> what those spreadsheets are for, no one can quite tell me. I put numbers into a spreadsheet and colour code things. A computer could do my job. The only reason a computer doesn't do my job is no one at work is smart enough to figure that out yet. <laughs> I am very stupid when I come home from work. I sit down and I drink and I think about being rich over and over again until it's so much more real than whatever this is. And then I have to get up and go to my fucking job. I don't want to work. I don't want to think about work. I do not want to care about work. That's a, that is a weird thing. Rich people love telling you how much they work. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about the CEO that works a, a 70 hour week. If I were rich, I wouldn't work a day in my life. I would be a proper aristocrat. I wouldn't deserve a penny of my wealth. Lottery winners deserve it the most. It's not being born lucky. It's getting a piece of paper and having that tell you the whole shape of your life. Lottery winners deserve it most. I should. I need to, I mean, I can't, can't just stand here and never scratch it off. Well, I could. It's quite appealing, really.
I'd never have to think again. If I were rich, I'd never have to think again. I could just float around like a nihilist and no one would stop me. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be whatever I am now, passive and useless and stupid and thinking about being rich and drifting about my stupid job in the vain hopes of 25 grand a year, like it'll ever make me happy. You know what? Take it. I, I don't want it, but I can't, I can't, I can't do anything. I want, I want everything. I want, I want the whole world. I want, I want dad not to be dead. I don't want, I don't want this. This wouldn't, it's so stupid to say but it wouldn't bring him back. And I know that, but I still, I, I keep thinking that if I won, if I, if I were suddenly rich, he'd be there because he wanted it. He, want, he wanted it for me so badly that it just wouldn't make sense if he wasn't there. You know, that the, the, the universe would force it to happen, make it be so like, like, like him really being dead would just be incomprehensible. Take it. I, I don't want you to have it, but I don't want to have it. And really no one should have it. But I can't bear to have it. So, take it. Take, take it. Do it, do it, but don't tell me. Okay. Wait, uh, uh, I don't want to know. God, I want to fucking know. Uh, no, don't tell me. Uh, you know what? I hope you end up so rich, it'll make me sick. I hope I stay up every night sick with guilt that I just handed that over to you. And I hope you're happy. I really do. Someone should be. All right? Just, just let me know you're happy. Just 19% of directors and 16% of writers were women. Since the turn of the century of the 85 Tony nominations for Best Director, female directors have accounted for just 15 of these, but have won six times with Marianne Elliott's Tony for Warhorse being shared with Tom Morris. For writers, the picture is far worse. With just 12 nominations and only one win, women represent 50.8% of the world's population. Isn't it about time that the stage gave a true reflection of that and allowed these voices to reach out to the audience around the world? Rounding off the first half, it's time for a trip back to school with Reunion.
Do you know any of those? <laughs> Ryan. Just fuck really right off with that. No more. It's bad enough being stuck in you and having to try to entertain me with that kind of bollocks. <sighs> I was only trying to pass the time. I, don't. I can't do any more bastard small talk. Reception. Fucking doors, fucking reunions. I think you've been rather harsh, Graham. I mean, do you really want us to sit here in silence? Well, there isn't even any wine left. You saw to that. Where is this Karen anyway? She was all over the Facebook event. No idea who she is. I think she was in the year above us. Her sister was the captain of the netball team. All these notifications drive me crazy. She can't even be bothered to turn up to her own event. Tell me, bitch. Graham! What? You're not my mother. How's Sarah Jane? Who? Your sister. All right, she lives in Cornwall now. Wow, oh, that must be lovely. Brian and I took the girls. No, no, I don't. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Comment, Graham. You shouldn't get yourself so wound up. It's not good at your age. Seriously, chill. Or whatever it is. Stop this shit. Do you want me to talk myself in front of you? Brian, my honey. He has terrible. Oh, yeah, please, please, tell me all about Brian. I can't wait to hear. It must be so exciting. I bet he went to school here. Yeah, of course he did. Were you a child, Brian? Thanks for asking. Well, actually, I didn't meet him here. He always quite liked you, I think. Oh, right. Was he in my form? No. He was one of the graduate teachers who came into the sixth form. So, so you were a 16-year-old student when you first met him? Dodgy, isn't it? I mean, I mean, I mean technically. And we you know, have been married for 19 years, Graham Turner. Do you want half of this sausage roll? Um, we should probably think about rationing them, in case we're stuck in here for a few days. <laughs> Jesus, kill me now. Why did you come? You obviously don't want to be here. I'm guessing you don't come back home that often. Do your mum and dad still live on Dutchy Road? Yeah. 
You do for now talking about downsizing. A bungalow. It's pathetic, really. Why is that pathetic? Maybe they need something that suits the two of them at their time of life. And besides, all those stairs. When did you come around to ours? Oh. After hockey with Sarah Jane, I came for my tea. <sighs> Only a few times. Fine. Good. Brilliant. You don't seem very happy, Graham. I hope you don't mind me saying that. I'm doing an evening course on meditation, mindfulness, and positive thinking. You very much have the dark clouds circling over you. You need a course to work out. <laughs> well done. Very impressive. Play a game. My choice. That's the spirit of the football! Oh, I'm very keen on this idea. Truth or dare? Well, now that's a blast from the past. You're on. Excellent. Me first. Very much so. Fire away. When did you and your now husband first have sex? That's a very personal question. Play the game, Jill. <laughs> All right, well, I can't remember exactly, but. I was in the sixth form. I remember that. What month? September, I think. Does it matter? Yes, it does, Jill. When's your birthday? Fourth of May. Legal, but still. Oh. How would you like it if your daughter lost her virginity? She wouldn't do that. And it was different with me and Brian. He groomed <laughs> you. Let's face it. He's a pedo. No! No! I was in love with him. It's abuse. Stop kidding oh. yourself. Why are you doing this? You don't know me or my marriage. It's just cruel. You changed. When we came back for sixth form, turned into a different person. Can't you see? He needs to be punished. Uh, Stay inside, they'll keep getting away with it. You didn't do anything wrong. Please just stop this. But we're talking. That's what you wanted. Thank <laughs> you. 
He should have said that. Never happened. Oh, come off it. We all knew. Calf Potts told Hannah they both saw you. The nasty lions. Couple of bitches. I think you need to be honest with us. Do you still shit yourself now? <laughs> I still have come here to be insulted. <laughs> I was actually looking forward to seeing some old friends, not, not to be treated like this. I mean, why? Why are any of those lying about Oh, I must keep on drinking. Try not to think about it too much. We're only having a laugh, Jim. Yeah, no one gives a shit. Characters, really strong characters. Stakes are really high for all of them. Uh, I was desperate to to kind of find out find out more. So um, all I can say about that one is fabulous and more please. Mm. Thank you. Leo. Um, I relate to shitty Jill. Not the shitty part. Not the shitty. Anyway. And I, I just, I, I feel like sometimes I am surrounded by quite grumpy, horrible men. So I thought, I really want to know why he's so miserable. Um, so yeah, kind of on the same wavelength. I just wanted to know a bit more. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Wanted more. Um, I love that you instantly knew the characters. The moment they opened their mouths or the moment they just sat there, we knew who they were. Um, yeah, I was really intrigued and I love that little twist of her having this relationship with his teacher in the sixth form. I definitely wanted to find out a lot more about that and see where that went on to. Yeah, it was great. Awesome, thank you, Deborah. And finally, Yasmin. Absolutely, it left me wanting more. I'd love to see how this piece develops. And um, 
it's, it's the perfect setting for a comedy piece. It's the yeah. perfect situation comedy. And personally, the thought of going to a school reunion brings me out in hives. So I, I immediately sort of um, was there, connected with that sense of social awkwardness. Um, really, really excellent. Brilliantly drawn out characters. Awesome. Let's have a round of applause for the reunion. Starting with Sean again, let's go for um, Luck of the Draw, which is the, the second piece. Yeah, that's great. Um, apart from anything else, great acting. Mm. Really love the actor. And, um, and the director uh, as well. Um, it's quite hard when you have a monologue not to make it static. And I think what worked really well was um, the way they, they used the space. There was lots of... Um, tempo and change of pace and and I really like that um, and it kind of brought alive that that kind of musing on to be rich to not be rich um, and I like the idea of the almost like self-sabotage um, does she scratch it off or not and I thought it was very cleverly drawn out the way we're drip fed the information as we as it goes on so it's not just about getting rich or not there's this whole background this whole depth to this character and I think that that's kind of the difference between um, sometimes you see short plays that just tell you exactly you know everything is on the surface and I like the way that this kept revealing more and more layers as it went on so really skillfully um, created um, kind of going off the self-sabotage theme, I thought, um, I, I just really enjoyed the bit where she was talking about how she's going to be rich and beautiful, and, but she's not going to be obnoxious, and she's actually going to be quite nice, and so I think women often tell themselves, kind of, um, how do I word this, uh, they expect great things for themselves, but sometimes they kind of find ways to make excuses to lower themselves a little bit or to make sure that the way that they want to be is going to be acceptable to everybody else. Um, that on top of just the... It's really relatable being in your late 20s. Mm. Some of the things that she was saying um, about you know some, the sadness and the job, and, and I think a lot of us have been there. So on that, on that side, it was really... And I'm not related to image as well, you could say. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, I thought it was a lovely stream of consciousness. Uh, it flowed beautifully. It was just so natural the way the way she delivered it, and I found it really relatable. But just in that, I think we all dream of winning the lottery. And you know, every time I do the Euro Millions, I have those conversations <laughs> at home on my own. Um, it was beautifully sad all the stuff with her dad, and, and I just thought the scratch card was an absolutely lovely device for yeah, just gradually dripping bits in. It was just it was just really wonderful. It was so watchable. Really watchable, yeah, it's lovely. She almost had a twinkle in her eye and with the sadness without talking about the death and everything like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So thank you. And yes, I mean, I agree, it's a beautifully executed monologue. And um, what I think is so great about it, I think it's probably quite open to interpretation to the audience. I sort of read it as the scratch card being a metaphor for someone in despair who's, who's reaching out for a quick fix because she doesn't quite know where to turn and she's going back to a nostalgic element to her life. Um, and I really liked how the themes of loneliness, grief, professional disillusion were all weaved in, again, very relatable. So, thank you. 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 Thank you.
concept um, and all prospective parents have talked about you know the name and you know what sort of parents are going to be and the panic and are we going to be good enough um, I kind of wanted a little more depth I have to be honest um, it was an interesting conversation between two people I kind of wanted the stakes to perhaps be a little bit higher and I think one of the things that, that we've said about the, the other two plays is that there's a real depth to the characters. We understand them immediately. We understand their wants, their desires. And I don't feel we quite got to the depth of character with those two women. I, I really feel for them. I really understand that they're in this dilemma, you know, about um, adopting, having a child... I wanted a little more depth to it. Okay, thank you very much. Fiona? Um, I would say a little bit the same, but also just just thinking about my flatmates just had twin babies um, oh. about a month ago. So just kind of thinking about everything that they've... I feel like I can relate to all of these in some way, which is really creepy. Um, just going back to the... And, and, they were, and they tried to adopt for about 10 years, and then she finally got pregnant and had babies. So kind of being with them through some of that process made me think about all of the different feelings and emotions and then you know they want they went and bought a different house because they couldn't have babies and then they adopted two dogs and there's just there's just so much going on that <coughs> I would have liked to see a little bit more going on with with the background and where where kind of their minds were at when they were going through the process and just a little bit a little bit more of information awesome thank you Deborah. yeah similarly um I thought it was an interesting take on adoption having two women uh there was a nice relationship between them, and I thought the dialogue was really truthful. But again, it felt like it was a conversation, and I sort of wanted to know where that was going. I wanted to, I wanted to, to, to journey somewhere. Uh, yeah, and I didn't sort of get that from it. It just felt like a conversation that was neatly tied up. Okay. Yeah. That's all around so far, yeah. Yasmin? Yeah. I would echo that. I think that could be developed in a longer piece. Mm. Um, it was a great sort of universal theme of impending parenthood and um, the seismic shift that it creates for a couple. I thought it captured uh, the fear and neurosis in that last run-up um, really well. And I think there's so many sort of traditional, in inverted commas, dramas about parenthood, fertility struggles, etc. It's really nice to see this dynamic showcased. Uh -huh. Awesome. Let's have a one last round of applause for our first group. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back. That would have been embarrassing as hell. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I have some more statistics for you. Excited? Yeah? <laughs> so, let's dive straight in. Uh, today, approximately 42% of roles in the West End are played by women, but only 40% of those roles are leads. There is still much to address this imbalance, but until the year 1660, it was illegal for women, women to act on the stage, English stage. Not until a charter was issued by Charles II were women allowed to perform. At the age of 30, on the 8th of December, 1660, Margaret Hughes became the first woman to perform on the English stage in the role of Desdemona at the Vere Street Theatre for Thomas Killigrew's King's Company. 
At the time, many female actors were housed as mistresses to the nobility, and in many cases, this was an exploitation of entitlement and power. Our next piece looks at how that such abuse is still prevalent today. This next one is called The Price to Pay. Oh, what a day. Oh, I'm so glad it's over. That wasn't right. Oh, I'm exhausted. That wasn't right. <sighs> Maybe some yoga will help me relax. His hands sliding down, sliding down my back, sliding down. Oh, give me the creeps. I'm being a cry girl again. But it was so creepy. <sighs> just touched my back, so he, what? He fondled my back. Fondled? As in fondled erotically. Oh, there's nothing like that. It's just a friendly pat on the back. His palm was sweaty and slightly shaky. Oh, it was not. We're imagining things again. I feel violated from an innocent pat on the back. Probably wasn't even aware that he was doing it. He wasn't aware. Really? He also can't tell a back from an ass now, can he? Why are you bringing my ass into it? His hand didn't go further than my lower back. That was not the lower back. That was the upper body. Where exactly is the line? And this is not the first time he's touched me. He's a hugger. He likes to hug. What's wrong with hugs? Hugs are healing. Not all hugs are created equal. I'm actually lucky that I have a boss who likes me and supports me. He likes me in what way? Is there a right and wrong way for a boss to like you? I know the answer to that question. <laughs> My point is, it's good to have a boss who likes you and supports you. Not if he's in his 50s and married and he's drooling when he's looking at me. So if he was in his 30s, that would have been different. Maybe. Men in their 30s are never that creepy. That's a discriminatory sentence. It's just my observation. Am I being prejudiced? I need to stop thinking. Stop thinking now. It's been a long day, and I've been overthinking. And when I overthink, I get lost in uncharted territory and get paranoid. Am I being paranoid? Or do I have a legitimate reason for concern? Maybe, just maybe, I'm starting to see what's really going on here, and maybe, I'm starting to get scared that it's gonna get worse. I've got this feeling in my guts that it's gonna get worse. My gut feeling has misled me how many times? My gut feeling has saved me how many times? But I can't do this to myself now. This is my chance. I've worked hard for this. I better put a stop to this before it's too late. I can't afford to get stuck on technicalities. It's called sexual harassment. I've endured older men's eyes on my body all my life. From teachers to uncles to friends' fathers, and yes, bosses too. I've accepted it as an unpleasant part of being a woman. Like having to inhale secondhand smoke that could give you cancer. It's what comes from being an attractive woman and having a... Sexy ass? A nice body, I was going to say. It's the price one has to pay for the benefits of good looks. Nothing comes for free. So now it's my fault. It's not my fault. It's, it's a blessing and it's a curse. I'm rejecting the curse. I refuse to accept it. Oh, shut up. It's unhealthy to shut yourself up. Well, sometimes it's very healthy. Not this time. Oh, why am I torturing myself? I think it's because I need an answer to the question that's been bothering me. 
Why am I the only person going to the Leader of Cast Live conference with him? Knew you that you'd bring that up. You! Yes! You! Oh, yes. I've heard that in order to analyze the situation, it can be helpful to talk to yourself in second person when you find it hard being objective. Well, I'm really looking forward to the conference. So you are going to the conference alone with him? Of course I am. I can't afford not to. I've finally been given the chance to advance my career, and I can't freak out because my boss is an older man. Most of them are. But I should freak out. I should freak out because that touch today, that touch today was a freaky one. I need a drink. My director has invited me to the LeaderCast Live leadership event, which means I'm being groomed to be manager. I've worked hard for years for this, and I deserve it. Besides, we need more women in leadership, do we not? And this, this paranoid voice in my head is, is the voice of doubt and self-destruction. It's my fear of success talking. to me, somewhat. But I can't freak out about it. If I can't handle him, how am I going to handle managing men? I have a feeling that I'm the one that's being handled. I should be able to handle being handled. Why are testing me, huh? To see if I can handle the responsibility and high expectation that this new position requires. There will be a test, all right, but what kind of test? I am ready for any test. Are you? grab something for dinner, he'll ask me. Most probably around Wednesday evening after the conference, if he can hold it that long. I'll agree. Why not? A business dinner with my boss. What could be more innocent than that? So what if he does ask me? It's a week-long conference. Eating dinners by myself for a week can get very lonely. He'll take me to the most expensive restaurant in the area. They're gonna sit us on a small, secluded, two-person's table in a dark corner away from everyone's attention. He had it arranged that way. He'll order an expensive bottle of red wine to share and tell me how lonely it is at the top. That'll make me feel sorry for him, and when he reaches for my hand, I will let him hold it. And even if I did, so what? And it will all go downhill from there. It will not. Can I be sure about that? My boss, a lonely man at the top, has taken me to the most expensive restaurant that I have ever been to. Who knows what effect a hundred dollar wine can have on my decision-making process? Oh, I should have more respect for myself. When the dinner arrives, he'll order another bottle of wine. I'll have too much to drink, and I know what happens when I have too much to drink. What happens when I have too much to drink? I have a harder time saying no to men. He's my boss. I know. He's my boss, and he creeps me out. I know how to keep my distance. When the dinner is over, and you go back to the hotel, he'll casually invite you back to his hotel room just for one more He drink. won't! Even if... He does. All I have to do is politely refuse. What about my promotion? What about my promotion? If there's a price to pay for it. There's a price to pay for everything. We've established that already. Are you willing to pay the price, no matter what that price may be? Oh my god! <sighs> the lack of self-confidence is ruining me. When you wake up nauseous, 
in the middle of the night, lying next to him in his hotel room, and remember his sweaty, twitching body I'm on I'm not going to go to his hotel room. What if there's no choice? There's always a choice. Not always. I can't go to the conference. My grandmother is dying. Poor grandma. She's turning in her grave. Proud of me. Proud for what? For being a loser. For saying no when a no is in order. If I'm really being considered for a promotion, not being able to go to the conference shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> According to my wishful thinking, one way or another, I'll be all right. Shut up. So before our final piece, we're going to leave you with one more statistic. 65% of theatre-goers are female. Whilst the cost of the ticket might be the main sticking point for the most people, the motivation to attend theatre is ultimately driven by a desire to satisfy deep-set values. Values which an audience member shares with what they experience. So surely, common sense and basic accounting would suggest parity is the way forward. Presenting the work of women, of women in theatre practitioners is something that we, right about now, are proud of and will continue to champion until such time as the theatre community truly gives an equal voice for everyone. Our final piece represents one of the reasons why Right About Now as a project was created, to give opportunities not just to new writers, but to new ways of writing. We believe this next piece is something very different and very special, a play for voices that speak to everyone. Our final piece <coughs> is when the, uh, when the Others Believe It's All Over. Thank you. The neon shone into the night and up into the distant stars that glowed as Alice threw up all over the pavement outside a, a club whose name, name she couldn't, couldn't quite remember. remember. The acid from the cocktail that she drank an hour or two before she came outside to get some air and maybe steal a fag crawled at her throat and made a gag again. And as she, she knelt and spat into the drain, conveniently placed outside the doors. She wondered to herself, which one came first? The vomit from the club, or did the council move the club so it was near the drain? <laughs> a bouncer looked up from the fast food app and made a mental note that, though it was still quite early, she'd had enough to drink for now. Meanwhile, down the road from the club, Ali stopped and parked his car around the back of his barn, took, took out, out his phone, phone and tried to find the exact location of whatever drunk and hungry person wanted chicken at this time of night. The app had been playing up recently, sending Ali to points 30 metres away from the customer's address, which could get fairly boring after a while. So, as Ali started up the engine and pulled away from the curb, he listened to a podcast through the speakers of the Ford that he'd bought when he first came over to the country to kill time while he searched for the address. The podcast focused on the man who made the app that Ali used to make what little money he could, as or when he could, and how the man who owned the podcast had paid next to nothing in income tax by moving all his operations to a tiny deserted island somewhere in the middle of an ocean, somewhere far away from here. And now, and now the, the presenter of the podcast had found a room where 30 million in virtual money moved every single day. And Ali thought about his own room, with a storage here that had never worked, and a floor that sloped at such an angle that he often woke up feeling dizzy. And as the presenter made some strange and convoluted segue to a mattress advert, and as he finally found the right address, and as he slightly said that he had arrived at the restaurant to pick up the order, for someone who was just around the corner, the glowing neon from a nearby sign shone into the distant stars the words, 
Five pound tickets every Monday evening. And on a beach beside some lonely course, a child looks out over an empty ocean. For the distant stars to shift imperceptibly into life. Opposite Alice's nameless club, Sarah, who worked the late shift every night, began to take the rubbish from the final screening and dump it next to the communal bin shared by both the pub and the cinema. And as she completed her final job for the evening, she started to sing to herself the music being played on the crappy speakers in the cinema auditorium. She had worked nearly 50 hours this week and was heading home to a flat that she could only just afford if she just ate egg fried rice and various different veg for one or two of her three meals a day. While supplying for jobs in the evening, cos though she lived with friends and the flat was fine, she often thought it'd be nice to earn a little bit more money so she didn't have to go to work to see the films that were coming out in the week. It wasn't like she didn't love her work, stocking up before the evening rush, talking to rude and obnoxious customers, smiling when they called her pretty, when they called her grumpy, and also called her sir. <laughs> Every night, all she could think about was sleep. And all she dreamt about was work. And the loop was driving her slightly mad. So, after closing up, she savoured every moment. Turning off the lights, taking out the rubbish, tuning out the passive loop of tunes playing in the empty screens, before choosing music for the long walk home, before making the journey back to bed to punch back into work inside her dreams. And Alice, swaying in the gutter, sees how Sarah puts her headphones on and walks away from the cinema fire exit. And Alice feels a slow desire wrap around her heart, a vicious weight that pulls her in, and a feeling that Alice feels must be love. Or something deeper, something stronger even, coming from a place inside her body, a gravity that pulls her soft and slow, a feeling that she's sure she's felt before. And gradually, the stars above their heads begin to move in continental time, shifting out with the weight of a millennia, repeating patterns like tracing paper overlapping, edging out gradual overlapping orbits of a millennia. Above the heads of the hungry bouncer. Of the tired woman, of the courier. Of a drunk, and above a lonely child staring out into the horizon, looking out the thin sea, out in the clear blue sky. Weighing up their chances and thinking through their options, their lack of any options. The openness of holding the world in your heart like a slowly breaking clock before fixing your eyes, finding a point and stepping slowly into empty ocean. And Jason stood outside the club, keeping an eye out for his evening meal, trying not to think about the future. He had graduated recently from a university he believed he wouldn't get into. But after the last three years, he thought maybe he could do what others thought he could not achieve. There <sighs> was a feeling that he would get used to, given a little bit of space and time. A belief that maybe in there there was a future, that he could maybe be himself without thinking about it every single day. But after graduating with the first, he began to notice that what he thought he wanted maybe wasn't what he thought he wanted. And it was becoming harder every day to realise the difference between who he was and what he'd done and what he could do in the future. And underneath it all there was a hope that maybe certain people that he still wanted approval from, in spite of everything, might start to see him as the person that they wanted him to be rather than the person that he saw in the mirror. And the distance between those people felt like falling straight onto solid ground. So, as Jason 
looked down at his phone and Alice stood to get a better view of Sarah and Ali made a turn down the street with the nameless club to bring Jason the takeaway that he had just ordered. The child, ignoring what his mother said about swimming in the ocean late at night, took a step towards the salty water and began to chart a course for something. For any future. For distant stars. Swimming out past the sheltered bay and looking up at the sky and how they're shifting and repeating, blurring, leaving bright trails in the constellations. Keep on moving forward. Always forward. Always ahead. There's a future there. There is something. There must be something. Please, anything, anything but the here and now. Anything, anything at, at all. all. So everything came back around as Sarah put in her headphones and walked away from the cinema, pressing play on the music she had downloaded that day, she noticed that Although she didn't think she knew the band, whose album she had stolen as she got ready for work that morning, she could almost have sworn that she'd heard this song before. And Ali, turning down the road where Alice sat outside the club, watching as Sarah walked into the night, noticed that the podcast that he had been playing before had stopped, and suddenly he could hear music, a song that he'd been quite sure he'd heard somewhere before coming through his speakers. And so Jason, watching Ali's car come down on the fast food app, as Ali was driving down the road, heard his tinny speakers play a song he'd never heard before, but he was sure he knew. And Alice, standing on the curb somewhere between love and sick, heard as the muffled bass emanating inside the half-remembered club. It was a beat unlike anything Alice had heard that night. And far off, out at sea, a lonely, desperate child keeps on swimming. As far above, space and distant stars move in sharp and condoluted orbits. Reappearing and then disappearing, shifting night patterns in the sky. <laughs> that had never seen the light before, now all whilst randomly obeying their own insane, wild, scatological laws of physics, as the child keeps on swimming forward, ever forward into the empty sea. Keep on going. And as Alice, only half remembered of the familiar beat inside the basement of the club, stands and moves to say something to Sarah. Sarah starts singing aloud in perfect time the same melody coming from the distant club. And as the beat from the club continues, and Alice finds herself stepping off the curb, just as Ali, who knows now not to trust the app for any specific directions, is distracted by the music coming from the tiny speakers in his car and looks, looks at his phone for a second before accelerating the final 30 metres to the place that he thinks the order should be. So Jason, looking up from his fast food app, sees, and in a moment of pure panic, moves in between Alice trying to stop her getting hit by the car, or getting between the Audi place an hour ago. And just as everything falls into place... Ali looks back up at the pavement and sees Jason and Alice and swerves, smashing into the pavement, throwing them back and up into the air before hitting the curb and crashing into Sarah, headphones on, walking home with the force of a minor galaxy. Ali thinks about a time when he was 10 or 11, swimming alone off the coast, all alone in the deserted water. How he had floated out for miles, and how he couldn't get back to the shore. But remembering the safety talks at school that he thought would never be useful with living in the middle of the city, he stayed perfectly calm, didn't panic, and floated all the way in the salty sea. 
And Alice, as Alice slams on and Jason starts to run, looks up at the skies and notices how all the stars are shifting in the same peculiar way as they did on that night. When at last she realised no, no one was coming. And the waters that sucked her down into the empty ocean and a feeling of possibility that everything was just within her grasp, that everything at last would change for good, overwhelmed her, crushing her insides, seeping out her eyes, nose and mouth, spiralling out into the darkest black, winding down into the darkest cold fear that kept her still. And as the car smashes into Sarah, sending her flying into the nearest wall, Sarah thinks she feels the same hopeful pull, the same weight, the same pulsing, changing current, cutting slowly like a ring through the night, pricking her with all of the hope and the fear of falling into something huge. And Jason, landing on the nearby pavement, head first, like a doll, dies. So we're going to go back to our panellists now and uh, ask for, um, as we did last time, so the last piece we've just seen, uh, with Sean Persons. Sorry, what, <laughs> I'm slightly Sorry. discombobulated. The, the, the last one we just saw? Yeah, the last one we just saw, yeah. I'm slightly discombobulated because it was so incredibly powerful. I'm like, ah, I'm still trying to process all, all things that were going, that were going on. Um, I love to see, I, I really love it when... Um, writers play with form. Um, and that's the really exciting thing about theatre. You can play with form, you can make your characters do strange things, you can get them to move in different ways. And I, I really love the way that that was um, not just um, visually compelling, the words were beautifully poetic, lyrical, um, which was that love, uh, and a lovely contrast with actually the, the very sort of tough lives that the four characters were were living um yeah incredibly powerful i don't know what else to say i'm still i'm still processing but uh, i think it'll, it'll take a it'll take a while to to kind of process that i'd love to hear um i'm i'm all about giving giving voice to the voiceless and there's nobody more voiceless than somebody working zero hours contract living in a in a crappy bed sit do you know doing fast food deliveries, really powerful. Thank you so much. Um, Leo? Uh, I think I was just really overwhelmed in a really positive way by all of the detail that went into each character and, and kind of their lives and their background. And I, f I felt a bit like I was a spectator just on the sidewalk watching it all happen. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of standing there thinking, oh my God, oh my God. Oh my, just kind of watching it all unfold. Um, and it was really, it was like a really beautiful, just detailed visual depiction of everything that was happening. Um, but yeah, I'm also a bit still processing. It was, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was great. I've never seen anything like it. It was great. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Thank you. And Deborah? Yeah, it was very different. Uh, I really did enjoy it. I loved all the different voices, all the different accents as well. It's so nice to hear normal people on stage uh, for a change. Um, yeah, it was just a really lovely sort of... It was literally one moment in time, but from all these different perspectives and, and how they all come together and, and collide in this moment. Um, it is, it's a lot to take in. It, it really is. It was, it was beautiful to watch. I do love the, the combination of the movement and, and the beautiful words they used as well. Yeah, just, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. 
And finally, yeah. I really enjoy this performance poetry format anyway. And it, it, I felt it was like a bit of a contemporary undernote wood. It had that sort of feel to it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, sort of a quite gritty subject matter. And what's great about this style is it already lends itself to a black box setting. So it had a feel of being quite sort of finished in, in this space. Um, I think it could be developed with a bit of sort of uh, movement direction, a bit of more developed movement direction would, would lend well to it. But um, really excellent and unexpected. Awesome. Thank you very much. We have one more round of applause, Bill's guys. So our final one was uh, the price to pay. So Sean, please. Yeah, I found myself nodding quite a lot through through that. <laughs> I'm sure I wasn't the only one. Um, so again, a, a, I like the way it played with form. Um, again, and I, I'm guessing the two characters, the two sides of the same sort of conscious, conscious um, being of, of uh, the same person. Um, and that dilemma that you often find yourself in, you want to do well at work, but, you know, in order to do well at work, maybe you have to compromise your ethics, particularly when there's, you know, um, creepy boss involved. Um, so I really like the, I really like the back and, the back and forth and the what if, and the, and the, and the way the writer kind of pushed it further, you know, what if takes you out to dinner and then what if he expects more and then what if after that um yeah lots lots to think about there but yes i found myself nodding quite a lot there <laughs> thank you Leo. um i think again for me quite relatable to an extent um particularly the point uh, where one of the characters says you know stop thinking now because when you think all of this just unravels and it just um i think it's a situation that most of all of us have been in um, and then just the, the kind of you know the two little voices on your shoulder you know the angel and the devil and playing out the different scenarios I think it's something that I've definitely done um, and I, I particularly enjoyed that they, they did play out the scenarios and gave the different options for what could happen um, which I feel is quite a powerful way of highlighting you know that this does happen and that's that's horrible but that it is something that we deal with but kind of outlining the scenarios for what they are and explaining them, I think, is quite a good way of, of kind of showcasing that issue. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, yeah, again, absolutely relatable. I think um, I found quite quickly that I understood that it was one person. Um, even the actresses looked quite similar, which is very well cast. Um, it's so relatable and it's so relevant as well, especially in, in nowadays with all the Me Too and even the Prince Andrew thing last night, you know, there was something about his sweaty hands, and I was like, yeah, you've heard that one last night. Um, and we all have these conversations with... All women have all been in these situations where we have these conversations and we try to downplay the truth of what has actually happened to us. Um, so in that sort of context, I didn't feel like I was learning anything new. So I, my question would be... Who is the audience and what is the message they want to get across with this piece? Um, yeah, it was quite hard to... Like, as women, we've all been through this, it's quite hard to listen to it. I don't know how men would have received that piece as well. Um, and also, I think sometimes when it's, when it's quite, quite a difficult subject, I think sometimes... I don't know if you would be able to do it. 
sometimes it's quite good to inject some humour into it to try and sort of soften the, the, the difficulty of the subject matter. Um, yeah. Okay. Nice things, it? Amazing, thank you. Yeah. And finally, Yasmin. I thought the internal duologue was a really, really interesting idea. And um, it had a real contemporary urgency as well in the current climate. Um, I, just, I wonder if um, some sort of mirror image staging could work. Mm. Well, ladies and gents, that concludes our evening. Thank you so much all for coming. And let's give our panellists a round of applause. Let's give our performers a round of applause. And if you enjoyed tonight, please come back and join us again on the 15th of December, where we will be enjoying something festive. And also, uh, thanks to Graham for putting on our evening. Yeah.